Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. Welcome to Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, episode number five, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. So today our topic is grace, and what does that have to do with culture and the kingdom of God and a thing called the cost of discipleship and all of that? What is grace, and how do we live it out in an everyday way? So uh, when we're living our everyday lives, what does it mean to live in the kingdom of God? That's a really churchy-sounding, religious-sounding, what? What is the kingdom of God? That sounds... I mean, it's very familiar to us, but then when we actually have to, de- uh, to decipher and define what the kingdom of God is in our everyday life, we often come up blank. Uh, but Jesus came to introduce and invite people into living in the kingdom of God. It was really his whole job description. So it's probably good for us to talk about what it means to live in the kingdom of God. And in that kingdom, the primary spine, the primary foundation of that kingdom is grace. But what does it mean when grace actually costs you something? That doesn't make sense. I thought grace was free. So let's talk about the word grace, and uh, let's start off. Uh, I'm Rick again, by the way, and sitting across from me is Becky, so I want Becky to kind of launch into this a little bit. What, what, what do you think about immediately when you hear the word grace, Becky? Hi, listeners. It's uh, great to be back. Um, I, I, you know, when I think of grace, I don't know why, but the color purple comes to my mind, and... Is this a movie or the crayon? No, just like the color. It's just like it's grace is purple for some reason, and it it just it's so comforting. Wow, wouldn't that have been incredible if it had been the movie, the color purple, <laughs> and then you would have had this like incredible savvy hip insight about the color purple. No. But it no, just, no, it's the crayon. I I, I think <laughs> in colors sometimes, and certain words have like color <laughs> associations and grace. Is purple to so, me. Uh, so what, why is grace purple to you? What, what is the pur- purple color? What does that signify to I, you? I think it's the Baptist church that I grew <laughs> up in and the amount of purple that was in that <laughs> church and that above the church it had this giant word grace and that I, I looked at it every Sunday it's while we royal. sat. It's royal. Yeah, it's actually, I think I've made the connection here for you. Yeah. The purple is a royal color. We just said <laughs> grace is the foundation of that kingdom of God. Whoa. (laughs) Becky Becky has been helped today. She now can make this connection. I can now make this connection, except for I really just thought of the the color purple. (laughs) Well, what are some words you think of? Um, So I I also think of just salvation. So we're we're saved by grace, and that grace is something that we don't deserve. Um, It's a free gift, something we get, um, and it's also something that we give to others. Right, and all of this, if you've grown up in the church, is like really familiar language. It's so familiar that it kind of doesn't mean anything to Rolls us anymore. right off you. Right. You, you don't stop and think, what is that? And then we have this whole idea of the cost of discipleship raised up with this sense of this free gift of grace. 
Yeah, uh, you had uh, mentioned when we were talking before that it, uh, it kind of a, a tipping point book for you was The Cost of Discipleship mm-hmm. by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Why was that, and what does the cost of discipleship mean to you? I think when I when God really got a hold of me in my life, and I was wrestling with just how much I didn't deserve this grace, and what does this really mean, and and all of this stuff from you know past childhood in church, and not really understanding even the tenets of my faith, I got a hold of this book, and I was in my twenties. Most twenty year olds probably don't read Dietrich Bonhoeffer, but I did, and he talks about how grace costs us something. And to me, that was so contrary to the way I had thought about grace for most of my life. Grace was a free gift. I got it. Awesome. And now it's going to cost me something. What does that look like? So grace, in the sense that it's a free gift, it means that we haven't done anything to deserve on the face of it the love that we've been offered or the sacrifice that's been made for us. It wasn't a statement of our intrinsic goodness that this was that these decisions were made it was because of love and the free gift of love was given to us what's interesting by the way is that most american christians uh, believe in grace they say they believe in grace but they live their lives exactly opposite from that belief in that they believe that good people and good actions should be rewarded and yep. bad people and bad actions should be punished so when something bad happens to you, and you're a good person, somewhere along that continu- continuum, you're thinking, this shouldn't have happened. I did everything right. Right. I'm a good person. I don't person. deserve this. I, good people get rewarded. Bad people get punished. But then our reality in life is we see many, many, many examples of this apparently not happening. So we still fundamentally believe also, even though we say differently, that good people are the ones who are going to go to heaven. If you just listen to the culture, TV shows, movies, books, this idea that you have to be good enough to go to heaven is still the prevalent way people think about what heaven is, which actually is the exact opposite of grace. Grace has nothing to do with us having the ability to earn our way into heaven. Grace has everything to do with Jesus earning it for us and then offering us this gift of, e- of eternal life. So all of that arrayed in our definition of grace against this idea that, oh, but this actually will cost us something. So when I was young, um, and I was a pretty avid um, follower of Jesus like, like you were, you know, you were interested in kind of meaty things, reading Cost Discipleship by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I was reading books by George MacDonald and Charles Williams and um, uh, you know, I, I was pretty serious about stuff, and I, and I had friends around me that were too. And one of the common threads amongst my group of friends in college, maybe yours too, was that if you were really serious about Jesus, then he's probably going to ask you to do something. The last thing you want to do is the thing he's going to ask you to do. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there was this common sense that if you were really serious, then you'd give up a lot to follow Jesus, that would be like your mark of obedience or mark of commitment or something like that. And a lot of my friends thought this way, and they were actually, if they were honest, they were scared. Oh yeah, I was scared of that. Like, I, I was scared. In of what that. way? What, so, so what specifically were you scared that, that God was going to ask of you? That it would be the opposite of what I wanted for my life. <laughs> I mean, really, I, I, whatever that was, 
it was the opposite. You know, I'm I'm gonna call you into that. This is this is one that you, I went to Biola, so you you might hear this around at Biola still. Um, that he's gonna call you into a life of celibacy. Oh, that was the big scary one. <laughs> <laughs> like you're never... What could be worse than celibacy? <laughs> and so, you know, that would be like the thing, you know, you're never going to get married and you're going to live a life of celibacy. Yeah. You know, you know, my wife is probably going to kill me if she, if she <laughs> listens to this. But the truth is when we were dating, she was so scared about our relationship actually leading to marriage in some way. That's another long story. <laughs> I think, I think we all understand why she was scared to marry me, but, um, she was so scared about this that at one point she insisted that she was going to become a nun. And she and she was going to pursue a life of celibacy because not only was she <laughs> sure God was going to call her to the worst thing in the world, as far as she was concerned, but uh, thankfully it would get her out of my orbit as well. <laughs> so this idea that that God has it in for us somehow because we have to prove something to mm-hmm. him, I think it attaches to something that goes deep in our deep in our sense about what discipleship is, and I've condensed it down to a phrase that I, that I call, try harder to get better. So even though we believe in grace, we functionally believe in try harder to get better. That's every message of every sermon in America has some element of what I would call a poison in it, which is, if you just try a little harder to get a little better, that's the path that we're, that we're on in following Jesus. So here's five more things to try harder at, and when you leave today, will you please try harder and get better at these five things? And so we just feel this heavy burden of trying harder to get better. But we don't really question the fundamental uh, formula that's going on here. So uh, you and I were at this gathering called the Simply Jesus Gathering a couple months ago in the mountains of Colorado. It's a, uh, almost 400 people from around the world gathering to just talk about Jesus, worship Jesus, and uh, grow from conversation with each other about Jesus. Yeah, you should come and join us next year. Yeah, it's in uh, late July, once again, the mountains of Colorado. You can go to simplyjesus.com, I believe is the right uh, Or just Google it, Simply Jesus Gathering. There you go. So it's a fantastic gathering of Jesus-loving people, and uh, Carl Medeiros is the one who's, who kind of is the lead guy on this, started it, had the vision for it. He's able to attract people, uh, remarkable people from all over the world to come to this thing. One of them I had never heard of, his name is Jeremy Cortland. He wrote a book called Preemptive Love, and he runs a small organization called the Preemptive Love Coalition. And he and his wife and his two kids live in uh, ISIS-controlled Iraq. Uh, so uh, this was unbelievable to me that I was sitting like six feet away from a guy who moved his family to Iraq and has been there for 10 years, and on an everyday basis has to deal with the reality that ISIS might smoke him out, find him out, track down his family. He told a story about one uh, his, his uh, son staying in bed one night when there was a loud noise downstairs, and they went up to check on him to see if the loud noise had woken him up, and the son had stayed in bed because he thought for sure it must have been ISIS, and he was just hiding. So this was their reality. So I'm looking at this guy, and in the back of my mind, thinking about all that he has to deal with, the everyday fear um, that this organization reaches out in humanitarian ways to the people in that region 
with medical help and food help and other things. But on an everyday basis, what does this feel like? And in the back of my head, I had this voice that said, you know, if you were a real disciple, you'd be like Jeremy Cortland. I feel that way. Yeah. You'd, you'd take your wife and your kids, and you'd move to ISIS-controlled Iraq, and then there'd be no question that you are committed, because, man, how much more committed can you be? And I think that's a lying, deceitful voice, and it's not something that's represented in the gospel. It's not represented by Jesus. So uh, what we're going to do today is explore a little bit of what Jesus considered the cost of discipleship was, this, and the tension between grace and the cost. So uh, I think a, a good story for us to kind of explore, um, uh, we'll, we'll probably touch on a couple of little parables that Jesus told, but a story of an encounter with somebody um, is worth, is worth uh, delving into. This is from Luke 18. I'm just going to read it, 18 through 30. This is Jesus' encounter with what we typically have called the rich young ruler you know, in uh, the Jesus-centered Bible, which I'm reading out of right now. This section is called The Rich Man. Um, so let me just read 18 through 30 so we uh, re-familiarize ourselves with this story. So once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? So a legit question. How do I get to heaven, Jesus? First of all, Jesus goes, well, why do you call me good? <laughs> Doesn't answer his question, picks out one word the guy uses, and says, do you know what good is? Because good's standing in front of you, basically. That's Rick's translation. But why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. So he's trying to get at under the surface this guy right away. Do you know who I am? Do you know what good is standing in front of you? But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery, you must not murder, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, and honor your father and mother. And the man goes, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, that's important, when Jesus heard his answer, didn't mean just that he heard it, he saw the man. That answer gave Jesus everything he needed to know about this guy. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there is still one thing you haven't done. Wow. So let's just stop there for a second. For a guy like this, who's done it all the right way his whole life, he's tried hard to get better his whole life. Oh, what does Jesus do? He throws a hand grenade into this guy's soul. Hey, buddy, there's still one thing you haven't done. Now, this guy's thinking inside, there ain't anything I haven't done. And Jesus says, no, 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 there's just one thing you haven't done. He's already getting at this guy's interior belief system. So here's what he says. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. It's a remarkable invitation. I mean, what we really focus on is what Jesus is asking him to give up, but at the very end, four words. Then come, follow me. What a remarkable invitation. But when the man heard this, he became very sad. Why? For he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? In fact, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard this said, Then who in the world can be saved? And he replied, What's impossible for people is possible with God. And Peter goes, 
no, uh, uh, Jesus, just to remind you, we've invested. So Peter says, we've left our homes to follow you. Yes, Jesus replied, and I assure you that everyone who's given up house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will be repaid many times over in this life and will have eternal life in the world to come. So in the Jesus-centered Bible, uh, we have scattered throughout all of these special features that really help the reader to focus in on Jesus no matter where you are in the Bible. One of them is these little boxes that we have throughout the Bible that are called Reframing Jesus Boxes. I thought this, this, this little passage has one of those, so I thought it'd be good to just read one of these short little boxes that gives added spotlight to the story. So, the question that the young man asks is not that unusual, but it's unusual for him to call Jesus good. Most Jews use that adjective only when they're speaking about God. So, does he recognize Jesus as the Son of God? Apparently not, so Jesus reminds him of a few commandments. Of course, the rich ruler has kept the laws that Jesus mentions. What religious Jew doesn't? Jesus isn't suggesting that keeping these laws is the secret to eternal life. He's giving the young man an opportunity to discover and reflect on his own flaws. That's the purpose of the law, to help us recognize our own sinfulness. That's from Romans 3. Because the rich man is clearly blind to his love of worldly possessions, a violation of the Tenth Commandment, Jesus asks him to do something that will reveal his personal sin. He asks him to trade his earthly possessions for treasure in heaven. And that, it turns out, is just too much to ask. Wealth in itself is not a sin, nor is charity the key to salvation. But until we recognize and repent of our own sins, we can't be saved. According to Jesus, materialism is a major stumbling block for many people. That's the reframing uh, Jesus sidelight box for Luke chapter 18, 18 through 30. So, um, coming out of this, Becky, uh, is this a story about materialism? Is it a story about trying harder to get better? Is it a story about uh, missed opportunity? Is it a story about sin? Where, where, do you, where do you link into the message of this story? Well, first of all, <clears throat> I think like we were talking about earlier, this is one of those stories that makes Christians a little uncomfortable, because if if our if our grace costs us something, this is what we think Jesus is going to ask us. He's going to ask us to sell all of our possessions, even the things that we really, really like, <laughs> and, and that that's going to be what he's going to call us to do. So that's that's part of that tension. It's like, okay, my grace is going to cost us something. Here's an example of it costing, of Jesus asking for everything from this rich ruler. Oh, I don't want to so, do that. So let me push the pause button there for you. So, so when we say that, and everyone has thought that at some point or another, uh, we don't often go the next step and say, what does this belief about Jesus say about him? So what does it say about him if we believe that? Well, it says that he doesn't care about the desires of your heart. Yeah. He just doesn't care. He just wants you to get rid of everything and live on the streets or something. And he th and apparently he thinks that all of those things that you've worked so hard to get your whole life are, are bad. Are, are not only bad, but pretty easy to give up. Yeah. Well, you know, pretty easy. I mean, I'm just asking, hey, what, why don't you sell all that stuff and follow me? What's the big deal? So Jesus seems a little bit also, in our estimation in this story, when we think about it this way, a little bit out of touch, a little bit like, 
crazy, like, whoa, Mm -hmm. he's asking way too much and doesn't understand the cost of it to us. It's totally one of those moments where people would have been like, uh, this guy's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) He's nuts. Remember that? This is the same guy who said, eat his body and drink his blood. Well, there you go again. (laughs) So... So, but here's the thing about it is that materialism is a major stumbling block in America. It really is. And it's it's not just about the, the possessions and things that we have. It Materialism, it, it's your time. It's your emotions for other people. And we live in these big houses and we've got plenty of extra space in them. We have, you know, we have excess of money. I mean, I think that I read somewhere that, that there's never been a time that we've um, had more money, really, um, and more education and more everything. But we are so protective of it. And, you know... Uh, the more we get, the more we protect it. Yeah, yeah. It, we just don't want to give up. Even even our emotions, like, I don't want to put myself out there for people because if I get in their mess, their mud's going to fling on my life. And I, I'd rather just stay in this protective zone and just kind of, you know, oh, that's nice that you're going through that. I'm going to stay way back here for you. So you've already said in a previous episode that uh, you stopped and saw a person who was homeless and you went back into the store and bought groceries for them. So terrible inconvenience, especially if if you're as busy as Becky Hodges is. <laughs> that the going just going back into the store to shop is no small deal. So you've you've uh, done this kind of thing, invited Let's say you've invited hardship into your life at cost to you in the past, and you're going to do it in the future again. Mm -hmm. So are you motivated to do those things because you feel guilty? You feel under under obedience, like, I have to do this? What, What is it that's happening in you? Like in that moment when you turn back into the grocery store, knowing that this is going to cost you financially and time wise, what's the calculation that goes on inside of your heart? I didn't think about any of that. Why? I, I just had a strong desire that I, I wanted to do this. That, that you know, th- these three these three boys and this dad, how hard is it to be out here? It's got to be humiliating. It's got to feel just terrible. And and I'm not going to throw you $20. You need actual, you, you need someone to pray with you. You need someone to treat you like a human being and with dignity, and you need stuff. You need more than just food. You need laundry detergent, and you need all kinds of stuff. So this is where, this is just such a perfect example of what we're talking about here, that that you did pay a cost financially and time-wise, and maybe even emotionally, and oh, am I going to, how involved am I going to get with this person? You know, what mm-hmm. if they ask for me to follow up with them, or mm-hmm. uh, can I have your cell phone number? I, I, I met a guy at a beach once, who was homeless, who asked to use my cell phone. Hmm. And uh, my my uh, the initial reaction in me was, it, the very first reaction was, well, what will this guy do with my cell phone? Who will he call? What is he doing here? And then I had to overcome that and say, of course you can use my cell phone. But then he used it way longer than I was expecting that he would. And then the whole conversation enters back in. What is this guy doing? Is he using me? You know, it, it the whole tension around what this is going to cost us um, comes into the picture, and what you're saying is there was something higher mm-hmm. that obliterated that cost for you. And I know that you and your husband are moving toward uh, uh, becoming foster parents now, and I'm connected to this huge youth ministry community that is overrepresented in people who are foster parents, mm-hmm. 
and people who are adopting kids from third world countries, mm-hmm. it's way overrepresented. These so many youth pastors either have foster kids or have adopted kids at great personal sacrifice into their homes. We have uh, a person on our staff that we work with on our youth team, Justin Bowling, who's in the middle of adopting their second child from Africa. So there's something about this community that I know which has a huge heart for kids that is willing to go through all of the financial and time and lifestyle upset that you have to go through if you're going to go do something like this. It's a heavy cost, but you don't hear them talking about that cost. What about your journey toward foster care. Talk a little bit about that. What's what's going on in, inside you and your husband as you're moving in this direction? Well, one thing I would say is it's interesting that you bring up that people who are in full-time ministry are, are more drawn to, um, to this kind of thing. It, it, it's almost like, oh, well, they're in ministry, and so they're more like ordained to do this. Yes, or we, we've we've set them aside to <laughs> yeah, do the, the really good works of <laughs> okay. the kingdom. Yeah. yeah, we'll just support them and pray for them. That's our <laughs> that's our ministry is just to do that. But yeah, I mean, really, truly, foster care has been on my heart since I think I was like 13 years old. In all truth and honesty, it's been something that has been on my heart. I don't like to think of orphans not having family. Five sisters and three brothers. I have a huge family. I don't know what I would do without them. And I I just can't imagine that. So it's always been on my heart. So when we faced infertility and I had to look at that big boulder and say, oh, wow, I always thought I would have kids first and then do that. And God said, no. Um, and then I ran away from that idea for a year. And then he really caught me, really, when I read Jesus-Centered Life, because that's really what my 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 purpose has always been is to do this. But what is interesting is once I stepped forward and said yes, everything else went away. All of the other desires, God just blessed me with just being healed completely of that. And I was so excited and, and thrilled and after uh, so many years of hardship and, and going through this battle. But what surprised me was how many of my friends who love Jesus and would I thought would just be so supportive. So many people, you know, just kind of started with the like, this is going to be really, really hard. Are you sure you want to do this? Mm. This is going to cost you a lot. You know, these kids are traumatized and the stories started coming of, you know, I know someone who knows someone and their foster child killed them and, you know, just horrible stories. And it was really, really hard. But what I realized is that they were uncomfortable with grace costing that mm. much. And I think they're, they're uncomfortable because our view of this cost relationship is really distorted. So Jesus tried to clear this up by telling a couple of very short parables about the kingdom of God. So Jesus told about half of his parables to try to help us to understand how the kingdom of God works. What is the kingdom of God? Well, it's a, another culture. I mean, it's mm-hmm. It's the, it's the culture Jesus came from, and that we are born again into. So we're born into one culture, but we're born again into the kingdom of God, and Jesus is trying to help us understand what the culture of that place is like, because now we live there. It's our home country. It's our native country, but we have to be introduced to it through Jesus. So he tells parables to help us understand it, and a couple of them that he told were the, the parable of the treasure in the field, and the parable of the pearl of great price. 
And he told them back-to-back, very short stories, but they both have the same message that actually connects directly to his encounter with the rich young ruler. So in both parables, a person sort of stumbles across something that is of inestimable value. They realize that they've discovered it, and no one else has. So if they were able to sell everything they had to buy either the plot of land or the pearl that had gone unnoticed, if they were able to buy that thing, then the payoff of buying that thing would be enormous. So the cost is really not that high as long as you have accurately assessed the value of what you're paying for. Mm -hmm. Let me say that again. The cost isn't high if you've accurately assessed the value of what you're quote-unquote paying for. So the cost of discipleship is a misnomer because we look from the outside in and we say, wow, Becky, you're really going to mess up your family life and look at the look at the tensions and stresses you're going to invite into your life. We're only looking at the cost from your point of view of what you're going to give up. We're not looking at what you're gaining and where your heart is taking you. So in the end, this encounter with the rich young ruler is really an exposure in this young man of his lack of understanding of the treasure that's standing in front of him. And I think that's why the story starts out the way it does. Who are you calling good? Because if you recognize that I'm God, then, then, and I'm about to ask you to give up something to be with me, then the thing I'm asking you to give up is going to seem like nothing to you. I mean, it won't be nothing, but in, in comparison to what you're being invited into, it is way overshadowed. And if you talk to anybody, including Jeremy Cortland in Iraq with his wife and two kids, about why they're there, he won't, he'll talk about the real hardships of where they're living, but what drove them there was the calling on their heart. Their great joy is met in the desert of Iraq in ISIS territory, because that's what their life was meant to do. I mean, he's living out his great joy by doing this, and he recognizes that he's put himself and his family at risk for doing it. That's the highest cost you can pay, but there's something much higher that he's following, so he's willing to pay that cost. Well, and Ricky, you talk a lot about mirrors, right? Yeah. So so here's here's the thing. These foster kids, they're called traumatized. They're called foster children, orphans, um, parentless. Some of them have disorders. They have all these names that are being put onto them. But Jesus, he sees way past that, and he sees the value of them. He sees that they're not just that. I have a different name for them, and I want you to help me show that name to them. And so the value is not just in your calling. It's also in, wow, I don't see people just as ISIS people. That's a name that that the, that we're giving them, and it's a bad name. It's a hateful name. I see I see them the way Jesus sees them, and I want to show them what their value in Him is. And and so there's there's two coins to that. When we really look through all the bad and negative things that we we call things, and we can see what Jesus sees in those things, why wouldn't we do everything? Why wouldn't we stay up all night, deal with tantrums, deal with displacement in your home, give up space? for the valuable lives that Jesus sees. Yeah, and uh, as we transition in here into the into some pragmatic stuff that we can kind of try to live out this week, I, I want to make sure that we understand something here, that when you talk that way about this, 
it's not because you're supposed to. In the Jesus-centered life, I have a whole chapter called Rejecting the Culture of Should, the shoulds of the Christian life that a, a really committed Christian should do these things. Mm-hmm. That, that motivation is coming from an extrinsic, guilt-based, shame-based motivation, and Jesus never, ever invited people into joining his adventure that way. He invited them into a, a life of intimacy with him. That's why in the book I talk a, a lot about the difference between um, a, uh, the difference between application and attachment in the Christian life. Application is try harder to get better. Yeah. Learn these biblical principles and just work them. Attachment is what Jesus said about the branch being embedded in the vine and abiding in me, and if you abide in me, then you can do anything. He's trying to make this point that the life that's coming out of you, when you see the great need of foster kids, where is the energy that, that, that wells up in you to, to, be, to be willing to pay the cost to do that? It's the heart of Jesus. Yeah. It's because you are attached and abiding in him, you get to share in his heart. There's no, there's no guilt or, or shaming in it. It's just you're attached, and so you, you can't help but want to do right. what you're supposed to and do. We feel most congruent in life when we are living out the heart of Jesus in our everyday life. We feel this deep congruence that I'm doing what I was created to do when I give way to the heart of Jesus in my life. We know this when we have done something that is like what Jesus does, we feel a deep sense of satisfaction that we can't match in any other area of our life, and it's because that's the heart we're sharing in, mm-hmm. the branch getting the life from the vine. We're actually living out uh, what we were created to do when we do those things. So a few, a few ways that uh, we can think about to practice or play with this whole idea of the tension between grace and the cost um, one is to try and find places where you can live out the heart of Jesus with someone, even though they don't deserve it. You know these places, we all do, where we our fairness meter goes up. So those little and big ways offer us an opportunity to live out what is at the core of the heart of Jesus, which is, hey, if you love the people who love you, big deal. Mm-hmm. Even the pagans do that. If you want to love the way I love then love your enemies. And of course, that's impossible for us unless we're abiding in the heart of Jesus, and his heart becomes our heart, and therefore, when we feel like we're relating with somebody who really doesn't deserve our kindness or grace, we give it anyway. Not because we should, but because we are now living out our congruent identity by giving out of the heart of Jesus. Also, just ask if, you know, ask Jesus, you know, what, what is it that you want my grace to cost? You know, don't, it's not going to be told to you by someone else. It's going to be, it's going to be shown to you in this loving attachment way, like Rick talks about it. When, when you hear, oh, that cost me something, you'll be like, I didn't feel like it cost me anything. I wanted to do it. I wanted to give that. And it was because Jesus came into your heart and he filled it up and he just gave you this joy for this thing that you're going to do. And, and the point there is that, yes, of course, you'll recognize the cost that it, that it cost you. I mean, that, that's real, but it's overshadowed by something else. It's not that you're turning a blind eye to what it costs, but it's overshadowed. You know, uh, last night in the small group we have in our house, we have 12 teenagers in our house every Tuesday night. Um, the, one of the last things we talked about was um, after the resurrection, 
Jesus is talking to P- to Peter on the beach, and this is where Peter says, do you love me three times? And this is a very intense conversation. They're finished with the intense part of it, and um, Peter looks behind him, and he sees John following behind them on the beach, and Peter looks back and says, well, Jesus, what's going to happen to that guy? Because Jesus had just told Peter what was going to happen to him in the future. He was basically saying, hey, Peter, you're going to be martyred for your love for me in the future. Get ready. So Peter's thinking, whoa, and he looks behind him, and he sees John, and he says, well, what's going to happen to John then? And Jesus goes, you know what? None of your business. None of your business. It's, 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 that's his story. This is your yeah. story. And this is exactly what you're saying, Becky. Jesus operates in our story. And whenever we slip into comparison, we are exactly on the beach with Jesus. And he's going to tell you none of your business if you start to compare yourself to others around you. Let's look, let's work out your story. The cost of your, in your life is going to be worked out between you and me not between you, me, and everyone else who's paying their cost, whatever it is. So that is an excellent point. You said you have a Dory memory. What? So we're going to leave you with Finding Nemo. <laughs> because that's, you know, it, this actually came straight from my friend Steph, because I was like, I need one more practical thing. And she's like, oh, Finding... You, you guys remember Dory the fish? She had, like, she could only remember things for 30 seconds. <laughs> So she oh, would wait, just. Hey, that that sounds a little familiar. She would repeat herself over and over and over again. But that was the funny part. But she also, if you did something bad to her, she wouldn't remember it in thirty seconds. And it was that's that's a gracious thing that you can do for people. If someone, you know, if if someone does something and and it's annoying or whatever, the you can give them grace by just letting it go. You know what's great about that that story that I just told you about that we were with uh, twelve teenagers last night that. Uh, Jesus on the beach with Peter, one of the students, as we're pursuing the heart of Jesus in this story, said something I'd never thought of before. It was so profound. They said, you know, Jesus never brought up in that conversation Peter's betrayal. He never mentioned it. Mm -hmm. And it's a huge elephant in the room between the two of them. They've never discussed it. Jesus never brings it up. And I said, why do you think that is? And one of the kids said, maybe because it wasn't that big of a deal to him anymore. Wow. So yeah. it's exactly what you're saying is when you live in the heart of Jesus, you, you're like, Dory, what? You did something wrong to me? <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. <laughs> so live out your Dory moments uh, today, and you'll live in congruence with the heart of Jesus, and you'll tap into the deep satisfaction that it is to live in intimacy with Jesus. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, just remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com website. You can find our podcast section and this episode, which is episode number five. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcasts, and Becky and I will talk to you next time. Bye.